I mean, what's pro football focus doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. Hey, as a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PFL. Do you not understand that they are that way because you're Joe Flacco? And you just like to discredit things that people deserve credit for. That you can't possibly be expected to defend that. Talk about the game, Sam. So Who cares about what people think about us? Yeah, I like football, I like football season, all the things that go with it. Welcome in to the PFF NFL Podcast. Steve Palazzolo back here with Sam Monson talking all things NFL. How you doing, man? Good, Steve. How about you? Doing great. With my half Mark Brunel background. How's that look? Um, it looks terrible, but it looks nice. better than what was there before you hit it with Mark Brunel. And is that Fred Taylor's ass that's going to be next to you for the entire show? Unlikely. Fred Taylor was probably hurt that season. So True. It does look like 28, though. That's Fred's number, right? Yeah, it's probably Fred. Might be Fred. Okay. Anyway, let's let's talk some NFL. Let's get right into it. First off, do you want to tell everybody about the uh, the little survey that we're doing? We're getting some feedback from all of our great listeners. Yeah, um, we did this earlier, I think at the start of the offseason. Um, just a few short questions on a, a Google Forms to help us make the podcast better for you guys. So we've got some ideas of a couple of small changes, a couple of things that we want to do as we head into the NFL season. But um, let us know. Hashtag, let us know what you would like and what you like about the show as it is, what you don't like, what we can do better. We have a Google Forms up there. I've tweeted it a couple of times, but we're going to set it as your pinned tweet. So at PFF underscore Steve, um, go there. It'll take you know two minutes of your time, Max. Let us know what we can do better and make this podcast as good as it can be. Yeah, already seen some of the feedback and it's uh, we will we will take it all on board. Uh, some interesting some interesting responses already from you guys, so really appreciate that. Um, also, don't forget, at pff.com, right now, 40% off. Save 40 is the promo code. Save 40. You get 40% off any first-time PFF subscribers. You'll get that 40% off on any of those PFF subscriptions. It's over at pff.com. It is the perfect time. Everybody's ramping up for fantasy, for betting, for simply being big-time fans of your team. So whether you're looking for premium stats, looking for our green line product, whatever it might be, it's all there. PFF.com. Get that 40% off right now. And, you know, as we always tell you, 365 days of access. So you're buying it now, and you're going to have it all the way through the draft and all the way through next, you know, July 22nd, as we're recording here today. So uh, be sure to do that. Save 40, save for zero for 40% off for first-time subscribers. All right, Sam, let's go ahead. We've got a Bobby Wagner update. Um, if you're expecting to hear Bobby Wagner on this show, it's probably not going to happen uh, today on the basis that turns out he was on Chris's show. Yeah, not happy about it. I Not happy about it at all. How's Bobby going to back out on us twice and then show up at, um, let's just say, not the PFF NFL podcast. Well, right? Let's just say that. I'm wondering whether he like heard us, you know, displeasure, heard our displeasure at him bailing on us a couple of times and just went, you know, I, what the hell with that? I'm going to go, go to the big cheese, go sit on his podcast. And, and you know what it is? 
Bobby Bobby gets nervous in front of big crowds. <laughs> I think that's what it is. He's a little nervous. He wanted to he wanted to ease his way in on Chris's podcast, maybe work his way up to the PFF NFL podcast. Yeah, so a couple of times, you know, can't sorry, something's come up, can't do your show. I, he was just hanging around waiting until Chris extended the invitation, and then yeah. on he goes. Oh yeah, I got a window on my schedule. Has now. I mean, why don't you just go on public television or something? You know, you, we need you know, to you, do if you're afraid of the big crowd. Afraid of the millions of listeners. You know what we need to do? We need to get Fred Warner on. Throw our support around Fred yes. as the best linebacker in the NFL. The new highest paid linebacker. Could somebody get Fred Warner on the horn here? The new highest paid linebacker in the NFL. That's where we wanted to start. That's where we wanted to talk, Sam. 24-year-old former BYU linebacker, Fred Warner. Now the highest paid linebacker in the NFL. There's a, there's a breakdown over at PFF.com. And when we do those breakdowns, sometimes we tap into Mr. Brad Spielberger, our contract expert. There are some interesting numbers there showing essentially the discrepancies as linebackers have started to get paid more than safeties relative to each of those positions. The uh, Brad makes the point that both of, both of those positions generally got paid in the, the market moved together, but there's a growing discrepancy in linebacker contracts. And we've talked a lot about that on the podcast here, how maybe linebacker is the most difficult position in the NFL right now. I was going to ask that to Bobby if we ever got him on the show. I don't know if Chris asked him, but uh, if Bobby ever shows up, we will uh, we'll ask him that question. How difficult is it to play linebacker now? And, you know, traditionally linebacker is seen as a devalued position, but is it more valuable than ever given how much they're attacked in the NFL? Yeah, I mean, my instinct says it's become a little bit of both. So linebacker generally I think is is becoming a little bit devalued and this idea of you know you grab those guys in the first round they'll make an impact of your defense and transform things I don't know if that's true anymore and I think more and more linebackers coming into the NFL are struggling earlier in their career until you eventually see you know what they're capable of look, look at a guy like Roquan Smith right Roquan Smith was one of the best coverage prospects we've seen come into the NFL, this perfect linebacker for the modern day NFL coming out of Georgia. And, you know, you take Roquan Smith high in the draft. We're in what year three, year four now for Roquan. And we've only just started to see him show up as the kind of the NFL player that, that his college tape said he was going to be. So it's taken a while for a guy, even as talented as him to make that kind of positive impact on, on a defense that, that you need at that position. So generally, I think that level of play, all linebackers are getting lit up almost throughout the NFL. So if you're drafting one of those guys in the top 10 and they're not making that much of an impact versus whatever other linebacker you had in that spot, otherwise I, it's not giving you a great return on your investment. On the other hand, if you do hit on one of the few guys that are capable of still moving the needle, whether it's Bobby Wagner, whether it's Fred Warner, whether it's Eric Hendricks, if you get one of those guys, like they are still materially changing how an offense attacks you. They are actually affecting games. And, you know, Kendricks is a great example. You can point to specific games that that 49ers game, which they, they ultimately went on to win quite handily. But for the first half, Eric Kendricks was affecting that game. And, you know, causing Jimmy Garoppolo all kinds of problems. And he's done that in multiple games for the Vikings. Fred Warner did it in multiple games last season for the 49ers. If you get one of those guys that's able to play with his head above water in today's NFL, those are still, I think, very valuable. But the position across the board 
I think is becoming devalued. Yeah, so just for some perspective on where Fred Warner is. Last year, he played over 970 snaps. Run defense, uh, overall defense grade, 88.6. Coverage grade was over 90, though. And and I think that's the... That's the key here in today's NFL, his, his athleticism, his uh, functional athleticism, right? I mean, when you talk about athleticism, it's not just 40 time. It's not just straight line speed. It's how does that show up on the field? Fred Warner is fantastic at getting range. Uh, we always talk a lot about how um, you know, linebacker range is crucial. Their ability to get depth and avoid giving up big passes behind them, but also you know, closing quickly on the stuff underneath them. Just passer ratings, not a great stat for linebacker, but it's one of those things when it's really good, it probably tells a story. Uh, that was that was Luke Keekley throughout much of his career. The grade probably told a better story, but Fred Warner has done a fantastic job from a passer rating against standpoint, limiting uh, big plays at linebacker, where those guys are generally attacked a ton. Run defense grade was okay, and he could, he could do some damage uh, as a blitzer. And I think that's the... That's the key for these linebackers, right? Warner last year, by our uh, wins above replacement metric, number four in the NFL, fourth most valuable linebacker in the NFL last year, but he's trending in the right direction. He's still young. It is a position where I think, uh, like a Roquan Smith, maybe it does take time, but this might be the time to lock up a Fred Warner. Um, The other argument I'm going to make is the general analytics community tends to say, no, get your corners, right? Cornerback is the place where, uh, you know, coverage coverage is the most important thing in the NFL as far as defense goes. It's more important than pass rush. you got to have good corners. You can't have a weak link in your cornerback uh, room, essentially. But the argument I would make for Fred Warner is the scheme and the situation that does matter. I'll, I'll pull some numbers out on this in a minute. But zone-heavy schemes do matter more for linebackers. And, and a lot of our numbers have shown, uh, even though we always talk about zone coverage for cornerbacks, you know, being a skill set that that it's it's not the same as playing man. It is more difficult to play man overall in the NFL. Those guys do get torched far more often when you're playing man. But in zone, the linebackers in a zone-heavy system, cover two, cover three, uh, quarters, where you do have one-on-one matchups a lot, the linebackers do have a lot of pressure on them. We talk about it with the Steelers a lot. Those guys get attacked. And if you have a weakness, they get attacked even more. But if you have a strength at linebacker like a Fred Warner, it is an asset. So I don't think the contract is as egregious as maybe the uh, the nerds would suggest, Sam. Yeah, and it's also, you know, it's working out as like a three-year deal with some big money, which isn't horrendous, even if the whole thing goes south. I mean, the first point, I think, is that, look, Fred Warner's stock is never going to be higher than it is coming off last year because right now, if you look at his career, it's that perfect developmental snapshot, right? It's, you know, intriguing prospect, talented guy, gets better, and then boom, year three, breakout, best linebacker in the NFL. Now's when you cash in. Now we get this guy locked in for, for the next, you know, X number of years, and we have the cornerstone of our defense. But as we know, it doesn't always work like that. And just because a guy had a career year in a contract year um, or a career year, you know, that, that led to this big contract, it doesn't necessarily mean he won't regress next year. And when you start writing up the best young linebackers in the NFL, they're full of guys that did that, that had this great year and then went south, right? Deion Jones is still only 26. We're now, what, 2017 was his sort of Fred Warner year, if you want to phrase it like that. And then he went backwards. He didn't. It's not like he became bad, but he didn't maintain that 90 coverage grade year on year on year because it's really hard to do. 
Darius Leonard, enemy of the show, friend of the show. Uh, same thing, right? His rookie year, I think, was his best year, and he's kind of not maintained that level year on year. He's been good, but not great since that. So Fred Warner played amazingly last year, was as good as it gets in the NFL. If you were a betting man, I would bet I would put my money on him playing significantly worse than that in 2021, not better or not even at the same level. So from his perspective, like you're never going to get a better opportunity of making the big money than right now for the 49ers. Like none of this stuff happens in a vacuum. So, you know, a, even if you played man coverage all the time, which nobody does anymore, you you need a linebacker that can cover, right? You need a guy that can go one-on-one with Christian McCaffrey or whoever it's going to be out of the backfield. That's a desirable skill set. If you don't, if you play more zone than man, which basically every team in the NFL does, in in this scheme in particular, this sort of Seattle tree of cover three, that is a nightmare for linebackers. Like you need linebackers that have a huge amount of range, that understand zone concepts and, and zone beaters and can get to the right spot to close these windows. Fred Warner can definitely do that. But also, with the exception of the Arizona Cardinals, Pretty much every team in the NFL is really good at moving receivers to specific spots to get favorable matchups. So you think of a linebacker patrolling the middle of the field, only having to really deal with tight ends and running backs and the occasional slot receiver who's not that you know big a problem. Those guys have to cover you know AJ Brown and Julio Jones and you know Justin Jefferson and Mike Tyreek Hill and whichever receiver whichever elite number one receiver a team decides they can get a good matchup by moving into the slot and running them over the middle and into the linebackers coverage area. So you can't just say like this guy covers the middle of the field and that's not that difficult a thing to do. And he's only doing it against like lesser weapons within the offense. That guy is going to have to cover elite number one wide receivers. And when it goes wrong, it's when you get people pulling up the tape and going, oh, any defense that has Julio Jones covered by a linebacker is just a bad play call. It isn't always. And if you have a guy capable of doing that and surviving, you know, not going one-on-one, you know, down the field on a post route, whatever, but just surviving and and shutting out the window, right, and, and making the quarterback go to read number two, that is a very, very valuable skill. And it's what Luke Keekley was so amazing at for a whole, you know, like a decade and Fred Warner, at least on last year's evidence, is very, very good at that. And that is worth a lot of money. I, I want to get into some of the numbers that I found, or at least some of the rankings that I found that, that might put into perspective just the, the role that, that a Fred Warner or a Bobby Wagner or Darius Leonard has to, uh, has to execute. But before we do that, quick shout out to our friends over at Fantrax. Fantrax is NFL Fantasy Football League Manager, is the most customizable, easy to use, and feature-rich platform in the entire industry. PFF is gearing up to play our leagues on Fantrax this season. They've got multi-team trades, player salary, contract options, bonus points for touchdowns of different yardage, projected player rankings based on your league's custom scoring, and then auto-generate player salaries for your own league. So whichever league you're in, you just customize it any way you want. This is what makes Fantrax so great. If you're coming from another site, that's no problem as well. They import any of your current leagues. So you can sign up and play now at Fantrax.com PFF and actually get a chance to win an autographed jersey from our favorite player, Buffalo Bills quarterback, Josh Allen. This is Fantrax.com slash PFF, home of fantasy sports. All right, Sam, I'm not on our R&D 
research and development team, but I, I could do some, I could do some basic math. I could do some, some simple stuff. And, and this comes from a couple questions that we've had. Okay. Why a, a lot of people have asked us through the years, why do we not adjust grades for situation or for supporting cast or whatever it, for whatever it may, may be. And I think there's, there's a lot of reasons for this. One of those reasons, though, is we definitely don't necessarily we don't necessarily want grades to change throughout the season, right? Like, so if we say a guy's a ninety in week one, and then we get new information that the team he had a ninety against is actually terrible because of something that happened weeks two, three, and four, we don't want that ninety to go down to like an eighty-five, so to speak. So we don't want grades moving retroactively. Is one of the reasons. The other reason is I think we can unlock context later. And almost separate the two things. Like, here's how well this guy produced. And then here's what this guy was asked to do. And we can separate those two things. So, long story short, looking through the the PFF database and the history, as I mentioned earlier, playing zone for a linebacker is a difficult task. They get attacked. They get attacked by route concepts. And they grade a little bit lower than they do in man coverage. The other reason for that is a lot of times in man coverage, linebackers are almost like, uh, they, a lot of times they're the extra player. They're like what we call a whole player or an extra player where they don't necessarily have specific responsibility. They're not always in man coverage, so to speak. They can kind of freelance and read the quarterback and, and kind of make, uh, it's almost like a free play from that for them where they can make a play on the ball and get credit for it. Whereas if they don't, Hey, it's okay. They weren't necessarily, you know, they were freelancing and they didn't necessarily have uh, responsibility to cover somebody directly, but in zone coverage, again, you do have to worry about the dig route behind 20 yards behind you, but also the route in front of you and being able to play both and split the difference and know where the quarterback's going. So all that said, I did some basic adjustments over the last three years and said, okay, which linebackers, on a per snap basis, played the specific coverages that were most difficult. And for for linebackers, it's cover two, it's cover three, it's those zone heavy deals. So the most, in, in roughly, some of the linebackers that have had the most difficult assignments over the last couple of years. Bobby Wagner's in the top eight or ten, depending on how many snaps you want to uh, assign to this data set. So Bobby Wagner's there. And then Fred Warner's there. Fred Warner's in the top, you know, 15 most difficult. So the 49ers linebackers are high and you see a lot of this by team. So again, most team, you know, most teams are going to play uh, the zone heavy teams will have a lot of linebackers high on this list. So there's a lot of chargers linebackers, Seahawks linebackers, 49ers. So a lot of teams that play that cover three basic system. So Fred Warner having one of the more difficult tasks in the NFL plus executing really well last year in particular and showing the ability to play this scheme really well. Again, I think it's just another feather in his cap, and I think it's another way to look at this and say, PFF grade tells you what a guy did in the situation he was asked, but we can go back and parse out the situation and then say, how easy, how difficult was this? And I did this for corners as well, and we could talk about maybe some of those guys if you want as well, but I think with Warner, it's just timely saying, look, he's performed really well in a difficult role with the 49 Yeah, I mean, I think you know a lot of the guys that are using the, the analytics numbers and saying, look, you shouldn't throw big money towards a linebacker. Um, I think generally that's probably a pretty decent rule of thumb. Um, and it, it, this is different to running backs where I, where you say, well, look, you get yourself into trouble where you start chasing unicorns and saying, this is the exception. This guy is different. 
So we should throw the money at him. And that's how you end up with a Christian McCaffrey contract. And as special as Christian McCaffrey is, when he got, went out of the lineup, Carolina's EPA per play was better, right? They, they were a more efficient, more productive offense when Christian McCaffrey was injured versus when he was in the lineup. That isn't because Christian McCaffrey is a bad player. It's because of everything we know about running backs in terms of they are products of the environment around them far more than they are a product of being better than the running back two on the depth chart. I, I think linebacker is slightly different than that in that you're not chasing unicorns. You're simply saying that, look, there's five guys in the NFL that can actually move the needle versus everybody else at what they do, which is different to what it used to be in the past where there might be 20 of those guys that were giving you high-end play. In fact, more when you, you, know, when you consider how many starting linebackers there were. But right now, I think you're dealing with an extremely low number of people. But those low num- that low number, those guys are worth giving money to. So Fred Warner, if he maintains that level. Eric Kendricks, I think he's definitely one of them. Roquan Smith, I think, will be one of them if he continues to show the kind of coverage skills he had last year. Um, Levante David is still playing at that kind of level, even though people are focusing on uh, Devin White within the Bucks defense. Those guys, I think, are still worth handing a decent chunk of change to. Now, you can debate how much the cash should be, but the market sets that. But ultimately, it becomes like a binary decision, right? You're not going to have that much to say in terms of, you know, do you give him 19 million a year or like 12? That's just not a discussion that's being had because the market is going to dictate what that figure is. So your question is simply, does Fred Warner get this contract or do you bail? Do you cut bait, move on and get somebody else? And I think if those are your two decisions, even if numbers say, you know, linebacker generally is being devalued and it's a skill you might want to dedicate resources elsewhere. I think too much favors the yes. So you, you, you sign him, you sign Fred Warner and hope that the regression back from what we saw last year isn't too hard and that all the other positive things still hold. Yeah. So again, one other, one other thing to consider here is I think the, the, the width of linebacker performance is getting, it's getting wider, right? I mean, going back to it's a difficult position. I think there there are just more worse seasons. There are more bad seasons by linebackers. So the uh, how much it hurts you now to have a bad linebacker is affecting you more maybe than it used to. The other point, the thing I th- the point I think you make about running back versus linebacker is a is a good one, right? I actually had this uh, this discussion with Eric Eager, the the guy who who built wins above replacement. And we were talking about the Warner contract yesterday. And he said, well, you're choosing, you're choosing that defensive scheme, right? You're choosing that scheme that you're saying is more difficult on linebackers. Yes. Um, just like you, if you decide I'm going to run the ball a lot, you're choosing that. But the difference there is there's a lot of evidence that shows running the ball too much is less effective for your offense, right? So it is your fault if you choose to run a lot and then, have to make personnel decisions based off of that. That is actually your fault, so to speak. Whereas defensively, there isn't actually a better strategy man versus man versus zone. It's actually not like there's nothing that says, "Hey, you idiots, stop playing so much zone coverage. That's bad for your defense." There are good zone teams, there are good man teams, there are bad zone, bad man teams. So, it's when you choose a defensive system, I do think you have to have consideration and I'm I'm opening my mind to this, you have to have more consideration for what your system's asking 
guys to do. We've known this intuitively, but again, in simple terms, in a zone-heavy system, the linebacker means more. In a man-heavy system, the cornerback means even more than we think that they already do They because you need three of them. You need four of them. Um, and cornerback's valuable everywhere, but again, Fred Warner's value for the 49ers for what they do is higher than if the Patriots signed him with all the man they play or the Dolphins or some of these other teams. There's also, um, there's also a big difference between like um, you know changing your defensive scheme or changing any scheme to fit a certain player that you already have right. versus changing a scheme so that you don't need that player. Like that's that's a very different equation that you're asking somebody to run. It's one thing to say we need to adjust what we're doing from our traditional the, the scheme, the system that we run because we have this player who's special and he can take advantage of different things if we adjust the scheme a little bit versus, well, let's change this scheme completely so that we don't have to pay this guy because then we can like that doesn't I, that's a much harder sell to me is to say you have a system you don't have a player that fits that system perfectly and because it gets to the stage where you need to hand him a contract you want to change everything so that you no longer require that guy um that I, that's just a harder argument to make in my eyes do you think that the jamal adams deal it has elements of that, right? They tr- the, the Seattle Seahawks traded for Jamal Adams and did change their defense. They changed what they did to accommodate his skill set, and, and it did not work for the majority of the season. They got a little bit better down the stretch as they played worse offenses, but I think that was a risky proposition for the Seahawks bringing Jamal Adams in. Now, in hindsight, seeing what they did, bringing him in, bringing him in essentially as an edge-rushing safety, and, you know, inventing a new position for him. We'll have to ask Bobby, you know, at some point, how much, I, that's another question I wanted to ask him. How much did the defense change last year? And was it because of personnel? Was it because of having a Jamal Adams? Was it because of maybe the, the, the pass rush just wasn't there? And that's the one thing I will say to just wrap up this conversation. Have mentioned this before, but the, the quote unquote cover three system that Seattle started running, you know, early last decade and has taken over throughout the NFL is it a more fragile system? Is it one of those deals where you kind of need everything for it to work well? In other words, you need a, a true free safety. You need a great camp chancellor-esque strong safety. It would be great to have at least one great corner like a Richard Sherman. You need a middle linebacker like a Bobby Wagner or now a Fred Warner who could do all of the things you ask of him. But just as importantly, you need a four-man rush. You need a You need a pass rush that can get there. Whereas the thing that our data has pointed to, which is the idea of build your team back to front, uh, get as deep as you can at corner, and then you know kind of create pressure through blitzes and uh, phantom blitzes and all that stuff. You don't need as good of a personnel. T- you don't need your personnel to be as good to run that style. You just need to be really strong in the secondary, um, and you just have maybe a higher margin of error. I think that might be one thing to consider. When, you cut, when it comes to choosing your defensive scheme and how you're going to attack offenses, that maybe needing to be strong at all three levels is perhaps one of the weaknesses of the Seattle Cover 3 system. Yeah, I mean, I think there are problems with that system generally. Um, it, 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 isn't going, it hasn't gone the way of the Tampa 2 yet, which is you base, nobody can run that essentially as a base defense, and that's the thing that you run and almost nothing else the way you could 15 years ago but it's heading in that direction. Like even the defense as it currently stands has to be heavily modified from what Seattle were doing right at the start, which was 
not that complicated and, and didn't have that many wrinkles to it. The system is changing and evolving as everything needs to do at the NFL level, but you still need certain keystone players in order to have any shot of making it functional. And I think Fred Warner is one of those guys. Also, I want to be clear when I, I have, I have put the Niners into this cover three bucket. It is, they do not play it as much as a lot of the previous Pete Carroll tree has, right? They, they have evolved, played a lot of quarters and they, they've made, they've added wrinkles to it, but the basic idea is they still don't play a ton of man coverage. Right. They still do put a lot on, um, they do put a lot to the linebackers and what they're asked to do. So, um, want to tell you guys also about where am I going here? Where is it? Where'd it go? Underdog fantasy. If you like fantasy football, that was terrible. It was pretty smooth when I was doing this. Are you coming in? I just turn it up. I misclicked. I misclicked. Um, how's this one? Uh, linebackers don't do much for your fantasy football team, but if you do like fantasy football and if you like fantasy for money, playing fantasy for money, you need to check out underdog fantasy. Underdog's got everything, including season long and playoff best ball. Best ball is a season long game where you draft a team like you normally do, but that's it. No, in-season roster management, Underdog automatically selects your best performers each week, saving you loads of time. So go to Underdog Fantasy, deposit 10 bucks. That's it. Use the promo code PFF, and you get a free PFF Edge annual subscription. That's promo code PFF. Draft now at Underdog Fantasy. So there are many great ways to get your PFF subscriptions. You can go through Underdog Fantasy, $10, use the promo code. You can go to PFF.com if you're a first-timer, 40% off using SAVE40. All right, you just sent me. A, you want to you want to talk about the uh, you want to talk about whale? Yeah, but just quickly, I, I don't think anything is set in stone yet. But there is potentially a favorite Bobby Wagner interview. Oh, that that's potentially on the horizon as well. There's also potentially a favorite a sponsor, an ad read of the podcast on its way back, which will make oh spectacular yes. transitions and uh, you know leads in to, uh, segues into the the ad read. I'm excited for those. There have been there have been rumblings. Yes, rumblings that the uh, that one of the favorite sponsors is is on one its, of the favorite, on its way favorite. back. I mean, let's let's tell it like it is. It is the favorite PFF podcast sponsor that is hopefully returning and will lead to some spectacular ads. Clearly, because we sold so much product yeah. when uh, when pushing this particular sponsor that they they just they wanted back in. Balls to the wall, they're going Blame them. to. Yeah, balls to the wall, coming back. Ugh. Jingle balls to the wall. <laughs> uh, oh, now you're giving it away. I've now you're just giving it away. It could be anybody. Anybody could have had that line in their ad read. Who knows? I just, I hope the our new HR department isn't actually listening to our podcast. I just, I, where's the line here? I Do they have to approve these, these ad reads? This feels like the kind of thing where, you know, once you, you'll get the notice, you know what I mean? If they're listening, yeah. <laughs> there'll be a little like note in your email one day. Hey, yeah. you uh, you stop by HR. Yeah, hopefully just a, like a little slap on the wrist, yeah. a little warning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. First time offense. Yeah. Send me a link for the whale stuff that's on the site. Uh, no, but it was in that uh, it was in that presentation that they did today. Uh, it was. I'm just. Let me see if I. We yeah. Our, let me see if I can get some information. You talk about it. Go ahead. Well, our R and D interns uh, created this um, metric that essentially was adjusting injuries and how how that affected teams last year and i just thought it was an interesting um nugget in terms of how which teams essentially got lucky and which teams really didn't and it, it it's very intuitive particularly the ones that got hurt badly 
with the injuries, it's the teams you would expect, right? Obviously, Dallas lost their quarterback while they were cooking and had a bunch of other injuries, and that hurt them pretty badly. And the 49ers were like the most injury-ravaged team in the NFL. That wrecked their season as well. But I'm actually more interested in the teams at the other end of the scale, the ones that dodge the bullet, so to speak, when it comes to injuries. And it went both ways. So Miami is a team I think that I've talked about quite a bit in terms of one that's heading in the right direction, that were probably ahead of the curve in terms of where they thought they would be last year. And one of the big things uh, pushing that is probably because they didn't lose anybody to injury, right? They accelerated this development curve and, and the growth of the team and how good they were expected to be because nobody got hurt. Um, so when you're a healthy team, you can be better than everybody expects you to be. The Vikings, though, were another team that that were actually fairly healthy once they got into the season and didn't help them at all. They And then the Texans are another one who were actually remarkably injury-free and yet terrible last year. So, But the, the Dolphins and the Bills as well were quite a healthy team who rode that wave of, of injury luck to a lot of success last year, which if you're sort of predicting how well those teams will do this season and adjusting for a little bit more bad luck on the injury front would be concerning. You know, suddenly you think, well, what happens if they regress back to the mean, a couple of guys get injured during the course of the season, Buffalo and Miami seasons start to look a little bit less rosy. So I want to ask you this from the lens of what can what can teams do with this? I, I think this is good information for betters. I, I think it's really good information for you know for Vegas setting lines, right? right? I mean, it's it's easy to look at the Dolphins and say, okay, they, there's no way they can be this healthy next year, right? That has to regress. That tends to regress a little bit. Um, and if you look at all the numbers where teams excel that are just tough to replicate. Uh, you do get a feel for the teams that overachieved or underachieved. And and that's why a lot of times, uh, you know, season projections or whatever it is, just don't match perception because the perception of the Dolphins are exactly what you said on their way up and rosters getting better. Yeah, there's a quarterback question, but like everything else is looking pretty good. But if they just have a an unhealthy season compared to last year, are they instantly, if they were unhealthy last year or middle of the pack last year, are they, are they a 500 team yeah. instead of a team that's, you know, pretty much right on the playoff cusp. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think if they had an averagely unhealthy season last year, they are probably where people expected them to be going into the year, right? Which is they're going to be better. They're moving in the right direction, but they're not going to be good. They're not going to be a playoff threatening side, a team that could have made it. They're going to be on in the ascendancy. And I think last year, you know, it accelerated things, which is why they were benching Tua for Ryan Fitzpatrick, because all of a sudden they were in the playoff hunt, uh, because they were they were relatively or very injury free, so it's just an interesting way of looking at you know where these teams are headed and how much injuries affected that. All right, I want to I'm going to ask you a high level question here. I want to call this section what this section what can NFL coaches do to actually win more games? All right, so I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna pivot off of the injury stuff. So um, our friend Mike Tannenbaum, friend of the show, he's been on the show a couple. Um, or a couple weeks, a couple months back, he has a um, his own little uh, NFL think tank called Thirty Third Team. They do some weekly calls. I'm on there generally, and it's a it's a really good mix of former NFL personnel and, and our friend G Matt Sam is always there. Mm-hmm. Uh, G Matt's there as well. But I mean, you've got you've got a you've got a slew of former GMs and former coaches. 
um, and young young kids trying to get into the business. It's it's really a great football discussion. Um, Jim Bob Cooter was on there breaking down Matthew Stafford. It was a good good little breakdown because he coached Matthew Stafford and actually cited Matthew Stafford's turnover worthy plays per PFF versus Jared Goff's and how Stafford uh, might take care of the ball a little bit better than Goff. So so it's a good discussion. There hit a point in the discussion this week, however, where they were just looking at things that correlate, or at least the you know things that correlate to winning, so to speak. I'm going to put that in air quotes, correlate. Turnover rate and how, how many points you score and all these things. And, you know, obviously teams that score more than 30 points, they win more games, right? So you just, you had all these things on a list and you could just kind of see uh, the differences in, in what led to winning more games. And, and I think the question, I, and, uh, what a lot of the coaches did on the call was say, yeah, we always preach taking care of the ball, right? We always preach getting the ball and turning it over. Of course, that's a big part of winning. And then I kind of posed the question, yeah, but have you figured out how to coach that, right? Have you done that consistently? Um, and I'll ask the same thing about injuries, right? It, it, are there teams that can actually avoid injury? Do we have enough information about injuries now that you can build your training staff and your training protocols and all these things to avoid injuries better than other teams? I don't know if teams are actually, I don't know if that's a skill teams have achieved yet. So I'm kind of open-ended here because I, there was a lot of coaches on this call who were intrigued like yeah man I just want to never turn the ball over I'll win 75% of my games but I think they're still kind of missing the boat because you can't really control that if you could I mean you'd be you'd be winning 14 games a year yeah I mean right now I don't think there's an awful lot you can do I know there isn't an awful lot of stability year to year in terms of that injury data there aren't many teams it's not predictive right knowing that a team was bad one year in terms of injuries it's not likely to stick the following year and the year after that obviously there are teams that have had really bad injury luck and teams that have had really good injury luck for a period of time but the overall breadth of the data says that this is not like a predictive thing um, in terms of how you can actually address that, I don't know where the NFL is right now in terms of the use of not just player tracking data for sort of NGS and all that kind of stuff, but for injury specifically. Um, I know, you know, rugby is pushing this a lot now and the Lions, you know, Steve, the Lions are about to play South Africa this week, uh, the first test, and they are apparently, it'll be the first time they use this real-time player tracking data to the point where, you know, it shows workload and all these kinds of things that can start to give you an indication of when a soft tissue injury is going to occur and that kind of thing. Right. Or there was like a two-day lag on this stuff. Once they collected all the data and put it all together and reanalyzed it, and then you could be like, oh, in the 60th minute, this guy probably should have come off the field because he was done. This will be the first time that they can see that live and be, a, you know, Number 15 there, he's spent, he's done, he's out of this. We need to get him off the field before he pulls a hamstring or whatever it is. Um, I, I don't know where the NFL is on that. I, I know, I don't think they're allowed to use that kind of stuff in games, but for practice and training camp and that kind of stuff, that's a potential area where you can start to get ahead of this stuff. Um, I don't know, again, how much that stops because a lot of the injuries are um, not soft tissue. It's not muscle strains. It's like, how do you stop tearing an ACL? Or how do you stop Cam Akers popping his Achilles? And I suspect those are just complete unknowns. That's, that's the luck of the, the draw. That's just the roll of the dice. I don't know that you're going to fix that. But there are definitely 
sports science areas that are pushing now being able to prevent those soft tissue injuries, which are important. Like a guy going down with a hamstring injury that keeps him out four weeks, that's vital. Like if Julio Jones is missing for four weeks because of a hamstring injury you could have seen coming in the data, that's that's a different, that's an edge. That's an edge that you can gain versus another team that doesn't see that happening. Yeah, so going uh, going back to pff.com and in, in the article that that was written by uh, by Tage, Tage Seth and Ben Brown. Um, really great job by them. So you mentioned the teams in particular that uh, you know, teams like the Dolphins who benefited from being healthy, the teams who uh, got crushed by not being healthy. Um, and not healthy in the right areas, right? Dallas and San Francisco, they're low in this whale war adjusted injuries lost number because they lost their quarterbacks. They lost Jimmy Garoppolo. They lost Dak Prescott. Um, but the other, the, the next section says, well, there's no stability year to year for injuries, right? So there's no, there is nothing that says, Hey, uh, we figured this out, right? So that's where, uh, if you're the dolphins, so the teams that were best at avoiding injuries last year, dolphins, bills, Packers, you mentioned the Vikings, uh, Texans were actually really good at avoiding injuries, but not, you know, saving wins, so to speak. Um, if they, if they decide, Hey, we figured this out, we, we, we're good at avoiding injuries. That's not really the case. Well, um, so it, I don't know how actionable that yeah, is you were, for teams. You were sort of asking, you know, what can you do with this information? And on the surface, nothing <laughs> like, it isn't predictive. It doesn't, but what I think it can do is serve as a pretty useful check or, um, big picture lens for a for an organization right so if you the dolphins are a great example the dolphins could easily be drawn into thinking well we are really close right now we can roll into 2021 based off being better last year than we thought we were going to be we're essentially a step or two further down the line in our great project to win a super bowl and bring another championship to miami but if you use this data you look at this and you say well okay, you look like you were a step further on last year, but maybe you're not. Like maybe you're actually yeah. where you thought you would be, but because of this injury luck you, you were, managed to have last season, you looked better than you actually were. And if you adjust for that this year, you're probably exactly where you thought you were going to be, and that should inform the decisions you're making this offseason. So instead of thinking you're further on down this project, which changes some of the personnel decisions you might make, actually – you're basically exactly where you thought you were. So I think the actionable um, information from this kind of data is that it's the big picture lens to just make you think twice about exactly where you are based off what happened last season. I, I think that's I think that's the best point, right? I think that's a great point. It, it it's similar to what we've talked about before, like where a lot of coaches come into the offseason, they're like, man, we're just got to get better on third and short we you know we were two for 12 on third and short and if we just get better at that we'll win four more games and you end up losing maybe the macro view the high level view of where your team is um, and I do think uh, front office decisions and coaching decisions uh, you need to know where your baseline is it, it, it would be it, to your point it would be fool's gold to say hey we're a 12 win team because we won 12 games last year just using a hypothetical team here. We won 12 games last year, even if there are other indicators that say, actually, you were more of like a nine-win team. You had a little bit of luck. The turnovers fell your way. The injuries fell your way. Uh, your fourth down success was incredible. The, your, your third down success was incredible. The Carson Wentz season that we always reference in 2017. It would be fool's gold to look at things 
that are unstable from year to year and assume they're going to remain stable or remain favorable uh, going forward. So then decisions might be made in too short-sighted of a manner thinking, hey, we're close, when truly you do need to make macro decisions. I would look at the Bears of 2018 as that thing, right? We won all these games, and Mitchell Trubisky, Mitchell Trubisky was our quarterback, so therefore he must have been the a good quarterback leading this first-place team when they easily could, or the 2017 Jaguars, one game away from the Super Bowl. They could properly assess their team and say, we won all these games despite our quarterback. Let's actually try to upgrade it. That'd be a... It'd be a power move. It was the thing that the Ravens did after they won the Super Bowl that Trent Dilfer is still upset about. You know, they looked at, instead of saying, ah, Trent's our guy because we won a Super Bowl with him, they said, actually, we couldn't. We think we can upgrade. And they tried to make a move. I think it was Elvis Gerback, right, that came in after him. Whether it worked or not, it doesn't matter. That was the, the thought process. And I think that's the right thought process, which is thinking of the team from a high-level view, not like, hey, we had 12 wins, therefore a couple good moves and we'll win 13 or 14 going forward. Right. All right. So that's that's good stuff. Anyway, it was you know it was it was interesting to me that uh, being on a phone call with a whole bunch of former coaches and former GMs, I, I do think they're still getting into this causation correlation type of deal. Right. Get your get your running back twenty carries. Get your you know don't, just never turn the ball over on offense. Uh, obviously, there are some things that you can't. The other one is. The team that scores first wins like 60% of the time. Well, that's generally explained because good teams probably score first. I mean, that's it. The better team generally scores first. It's not because it's a tactical advantage that is that strong. It's probably like a percentage point or two. But, you know, the Chiefs probably score first more because they're a better team and they have Patrick Mahomes and a good offense. Yeah, So somebody emailed us a while ago who was um... – some kind of psychologist or a behavioral scientist or something like that. And he kind of listed out a lot of the common, um, you know, methods of thinking and, and all this kind of stuff that affect everything, right. Defect. And the NFL, I think is huge in this. They're very bad at understanding biases. So yeah. teams that exactly what you said, when they look at their season previously and they say, where did it go? Right. Where did it go wrong? What can we fix next year? and Move on they tend to think that all the things that went right will stay the same and they just need to fix the things that went wrong. Um, and they're very bad at sort of understanding the biases at play when they do that self-evaluation, I think generally. And there are teams that are very good at it and those typically are the teams that win year on year and are able to avoid going down those, those mistakes. But like one of my favorites is that idea that it's survivorship bias, right? The things that went right will continue to go right. Um, like, you know, the, the story, the, like the best example of that survivorship bias, the, the World War II planes thing. You know about that? No. What's that now? I, by the way, they I found were, the email. We can actually go through this email if you want to. It's a good discussion. Okay. That. I mean, I don't know that we necessarily need to go through the whole thing because there's a lot there yeah. that I don't really understand and <laughs> don't intend to research in the next eight seconds. But um, yeah, so they, they were evaluating or analyzing um, all these planes that made it back in World War II and like where the bullet holes were on them and therefore where they needed to sort of reinforce with extra armor and make things more efficient and those kinds of things. So they were looking at all these, these uh, bullet holes and plotted them kind of on a plane and found out that they're all on the wings, they're on the tail, they're on the fuselage, but they're not on the engines, right? So they were saying, well, okay, what we need to do is to like reinforce these areas like let's put 
uh, armor on the wings. Let's put armor in the fuselage because that's where these planes are getting hit. And that's the issue. But the point is that all the ones where the bullet holes were in the engine are at the bottom of the sea somewhere. Right. They didn't make it back, right? right? But actually, the thing, so um, there was a very smart guy who recognized this and was arguing the exact opposite, that actually what you want is to reinforce the areas that you're not finding bullet holes because those are the planes that never made it back. So while you look at this data and the data says that's the area you should reinforce, the wings, these are the areas you should attack, the smart people recognize the fallacy and the problem that, look, this is, this is a bias in the data. This is survivorship bias. And what you actually want to do is do the exact opposite of what this data set is telling you. That, I think, is what a lot of NFL teams are bad at recognizing year on year is, hey, this says we're great at surviving injuries. Therefore, we can, you know, we can, avoid, without, we can avoid building depth in specific areas or we can just ride what's happening so far but the data would actually say, do the opposite, reinforce the areas where you just got away with it, because that's probably not happening two years in a row. I mean, I, even just the football analogy of like, take care of the engine, man, take care of your engine. And you don't have to worry about things on the edges, which is not uh, running back, by the way, as a like, no, no, <laughs> the engine's still the pass game on both sides of the ball. And then, you know, make sure that the other stuff is, is, is good enough. Um, emails from Michael Allen. I'll, I'll just I'll highlight a couple points. It came back you know, a few weeks back. He's a clinical social worker in Massachusetts. He talked a lot about uh, you know psychology and just uh, again cognitive distortions or things that uh, you know that that you know your mind plays tricks on you. So one of the ones he highlighted was overgeneralization, which means extrapolating a general rule from a singular event. And the example he used, one that we've used, is the Chiefs. They got a bad roll of the dice with their offensive line last year, overgeneralized that experience heading into the season. So they they very unluckily lost their starting left tackle and their right tackle never came back and everybody got hurt on the offensive line. The Super Bowl happened and they got crushed. Um, but then they overinvested passing up opportunities. This is Michael writing here, Michael Allen. Uh, they overinvested passing up on opportunities to make higher EV plays by adding weapons for Mahomes. Wouldn't Will Fuller, the great Alejandro Villanueva and some cap room to sign a guard be better for the team maybe than say a Joe Tooney and, and legitimately Will Fuller plus Alejandro Villanueva will make about as much as Joe Tooney this year and it is a great point now it, it's not always as simple as hey just go make those moves but let's envision that for a second right Alejandro Villanueva is the starting left tackle maybe they they still have a first round pick all those other picks they still have a first round pick that they didn't use on Orlando Brown um, and then they have Will Fuller. Imagine Will Fuller on that Kansas City Chiefs team that already has Tyree Kill and Travis Kelsey, and he becomes your third option. We've already talked how much Will Fuller actually improves the offenses that he is on historically. What would he do for the Chiefs? Far more than the Le'Veon Bell signing a couple years ago, and probably far more than the offensive line investment. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a great example. Some of the other stuff that he's uh, come up with, uh, this one's uh, catastrophizing, Sam, a common issue. That's assuming the worst when faced with the unknown. When people catastrophize, ordinary worries can quickly escalate. How about that on like fourth down decisions for an NFL coach? They immediately think, what's going to happen if I don't get it? And they don't necessarily see the positive side maybe of those decisions. Yeah, I think that's a huge one, particularly with this stuff that has traditionally been the uh, the opposite of the way you do it so fourth down decisions is a great a great example everybody realizes that 
the data says you should be going for it more in fourth down and you should be um, the two point conversion is another one, right? Where you should be going for it earlier, but that's not the way it used to be done. It's not the way it's always been done. So it's, it's, and the reason for that is essentially guys were too conservative coaches and decision makers were too conservative because they're envisaging the worst, right? This is not the way it's done. So if I start doing it this way and it goes South, then I look like an idiot and I get fired and the whole thing unravels around me. Whereas the, again, the data is saying you should be doing this more and finding out where the other end is, right? Finding out where the, where it stops to become an edge and where you start, stop making uh, positive gains on it. Um, by just looking at, by just framing it differently, instead of imagining what the worst is, start imagining what the best is. Like how much, how much good can we do by pushing this boundary instead of like, how bad can it get if I screw it up? There's uh, one of the other that Michael lists here is called discounting the positive. There's overlap. That's kind of the same thing that we're talking about there. Um, Discounting the positive outcome of those fourth down decisions. I want to talk about two more of them though. I think are interesting. One is emotional reasoning, the false belief that your emotions are truth, that the way you feel about a situation is a reliable indicator of reality. Oh man, this could go far beyond football, but you know, from a football sense right now, the emotional reasoning aspect, there are so many football truths that people believe their truth, whatever it is, uh, the, you know, establishing the run or whatever it might be that I do, uh, I, I think what's that? That's also a fourth down one. It's the reason that always gets thrown yeah. at you is, hey, the analytics can't tell you if your left guard's getting beat up and the right guard's tired and, you know, all these emotional things that are real. They exist. And, you know, leaving aside for the, for the moment that analytics actually can tell you most of that, that's the thing, right? It's, it's your emotional response to this is probably not as valuable as the overall weight of the data that's telling you the result that the, the the chance of this actually working is a more important thing than how you feel that the right guard is performing in this particular instance. The the one that I've run into a lot, I've talked to a lot of evaluators who were like, they just always remember their games. They remember the games where they lost. I, I've heard somebody say, I remember the game where our, our defensive end just got crushed in the run game and, and I'll, I'll never have a bad run you know, run stuffing defensive end again, right? I'll never have somebody that's bad against the run. And it's this over, it's emotional overreaction to your situation, which is a very, you know, human thing to do. It's like you, but uh, I like, you know, your, your life is a small sample size. Unfortunately, um, your life experiences are a small sample size. And it's a tough thing to remember um, that your particular losses or wins even, right? It, you know, a lot of people look back and say, we won this way. Um, therefore it must be the way to do it when maybe it, it isn't necessarily, or, also, or it was an outlier. It's also not necessarily even accurate. I mean, a memory lies to you all the time. Memory isn't the true the accurate indicator of anything. B, you know, you know, and I know from doing the data collection on this stuff and from grading guys that you're not necessarily remembering it accurately, even when you're, you know, paying attention and doing it in an in-depth way and going play by play, grading a specific guy like just the difference between your recollection of doing that and the actual number at the end of it all, right? So even just simplify it down to plus or minus, plus, minus, or nothing. If you do that for every single guy for 60 plays and then compare what you think that is intuitively, like what the final number is versus what it actually is, 
you're probably way off. Like you just, you're not going to remember that accurately. So, and, and a guy watching the game on the sideline, essentially whilst play calling and doing other things is even worse in terms of like what his recollection is. So the guy whose feeling is that the left guard is getting his ass kicked and therefore can't block for this fourth down attempt you want to run is probably remembering like two plays where he got owned, right? Versus the other yeah. 50 in the game where nothing has happened, right? So even but there's it's just you're, there's something else to that though. Measuring this. So not only can you not necessarily remember the good and the bad for that particular guy, you also can't off the top of your head remember what the baseline is. Like, what's the baseline expectation for that particular player? Um, you, it might be that, you know, guards and centers actually do get beat more often. And and that's just, and, and that is kind of the truth in, in the run game historically. Therefore, the best, you know, an average center is going to have more losses than wins overall. Or when, we get this a lot when with our offensive line grades. Hey, you know, the left tackle was great except these five plays. It's like, well, okay, that's fine. But the average left tackle loses five plays a game, right? The average left tackle wins 90% of the time, whatever that, you know, that 88% of the time, 90% of the time. So it's not like, oh, this guy's great. He he won 90%. No, that's average. You you have to know what the baseline is as well when you're, when you're looking at this stuff. Right. I mean, I think at the very minimum, like, again, those things are real and they exist, but you need to have an appreciation for how big a piece of the puzzle they should be. And if all the data is overwhelmingly telling you to do one thing, your feeling or your, you know, more, um, more uh, untouchable, the kind of the wishy-washy stuff should be at the very minimum, just a little check in the system, right? It's like, how certain is the data that this is the right call? Because I think that this guy is a potential problem there. You know, like the the intangible stuff, right? That shouldn't be the, the decision. That should be maybe, you know, a check on the actual decision. All right, the last one here that um, very, very cool email from Michael Allen. Um, labeling. So this is reducing oneself or other people to a single, usually negative, characteristic or descriptor like, quote unquote, drunk or, quote unquote, failure. Um do we do we fall into this, Sam? Do we fall into this as evaluators and just say this guy's good, this guy's bad, this guy's average? Sure. Um, and, and is that uh, are there benefits to doing that? Um, just to get an idea, like if you have more guys that we claim are good, you'll probably be good, probably be good. Um, or do you lose some of the nuance when you just label a guy? Um, and maybe this is one of those things that say Bill Belichick has been good at through the years. Like Kyle Van Noy would be described as bad historically because of his career with the Lions, but Bill Belichick found what he was good at and put him in a good position to succeed, right? I mean, that's a a historically Bill Belichick type of thing to do. So labeling is an interesting one because I think there are some benefits to it, but clearly um, it's too simplistic at other times as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely a common thing in the NFL, whether it's good or bad, whether it's just whether it's a trait, you know, this guy is clutch, this guy isn't. And again, those are things that are typically transient and don't always stick um, or or whether it's just, you know, this guy is very good at this and then ceases to be or, or it was a product of the, you know, the system, the defense rather than those kinds of things or injuries, I think are probably another one, right? This guy is injury prone. This guy right. is durable. And it's just a case of whether he had injury luck or not. Um, there obviously are some guys out there that are injury prone, but there are also guys that just have a couple of injuries 
and then get healthy and are never injured again. I mean, Frank Gore is one of the best examples of that. That guy tore knee ligaments multiple times in college and slipped to the middle rounds of the draft because he was dubbed injury prone. And then the guy has been like an unbreakable rock in the NFL for 15 years since that. So yeah, I think that's a good example of how labeling could lead you astray. This guy behind me, is that Fred Taylor? If that is Fred Taylor, it's fragile Fred until he started to become durable, you know, by like year three in his career, all of a sudden he started to, uh, to play a lot. So yeah, that, that goes back to our injury question. You know, like do you, uh, I know teams, the more I talk to teams, the more I know that they want to know how many games a guy played, how injured was this guy? How many injuries is he? All this stuff. They want to know injury history. And I think an extensive injury history probably leads to some durability issues going forward, but I don't know if they've necessarily cracked the code or found a trend in how to stay healthy uh, as we've shown previously. So man, it's a good fun discussion, man. I, I think a lot of the philosophical offseason stuff is 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 interesting it's fun and it's i like to hear from the fans too because you guys uh like a michael allen with his email you guys fuel a lot of these conversations so that's great we love that interaction with the emails it's nfl podcast at pff.com if you guys want to email us more thoughts and ideas and then of course go to uh, my twitter bio I, I have it in my pinned tweet you can go to sam's uh you know twitter page and you know see where he tweeted it out but our, our survey for the millions of you, um, we're looking for a million responses and uh, just want to hear what you guys think. Responses. I'm just, I'm, you don't think we're going to get there? Well, even if we do, I'm not waiting through a million <laughs> replies. There are too many, you know. The ones that make replies. clean pie charts are fine. It's not so much. It's the ones that are open-ended that are tough. Yeah. At that point, I'm not going through a million of them. Sam promises to read each and every response. And I appreciate those who said they like more baseball stories and anecdotes yeah i don't because uh, i hear you i hear your feedback what sam i i don't i don't appreciate those people that's all i'm saying all right i think um next thursday we're gonna we're gonna a week from today we're gonna suit you up into the baseball gear yeah sound good yeah so i gotta i gotta shave that ridiculous facial hair that day that's gonna the, suck. the, the beard's looking strong it's looking well good. i have to i've I had to you know keep it going because that's gonna be the day it has to be in you know in fine fettle that day i'm trying to think this what else i need to do i need to bring some like sunflower seeds and bubble gum i think i'm gonna yeah i gotta go a packet of uh big league chew big league chew yeah yeah uh double bubble was pretty common for us too the little pieces of double bubble and uh every dugout was filled with sunflower seeds of course do you have a preference on sunflower seeds or you just like a regular regular guy i don't have a preference for them okay because some of like the roasted uh, like barbecue ones and everything were, were really good. Seem like a good idea. No, David sunflower seeds though they're the classic salted one. We'll probably bring those in. Yeah. So you've got something to chew on during the show. Perfect. Tobacco. You're a tobacco guy. Of course. Well, that's the. I think we have that covered with the big league chew, right? Big league chew. Yeah. So you just you could get the get the big wad in there. That's good. All right, man. Sounds good. Great show. Thanks to everybody for tuning in. Don't forget, save 40 percent off any PFF subscription over at pff.com if you're a first timer. Special thanks to Fantrax and Underdog Fantasy and our special new sponsor that's coming back, going balls to the wall, coming up very, very soon. All right, buddy. Talk to you on Monday. All right. Easy. See you guys. Tomorrow.